This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Steve Brown, founder of Possibility and Purpose and author of The Innovation Ultimatum. I think there are two pieces to the innovation ultimatum. There's one that's sort of more obvious on the surface, which is the competitive imperative, which is kind of the stick. The gap between those that embrace technology and those that don't has always been there, but that gap is going to widen dramatically in the next decade. The other side of the innovation ultimatum is the moral obligation for us as individuals and as as companies to do the right thing and to create value for humans and to solve human problems. This is Steve. He's a futurist, author, entrepreneur and advisor with over 30 years of experience in high tech. Prior to building his own consulting business, he was Intel's chief evangelist and worked in Intel's labs as a futurist, where he imagined and built plans for a world 5, 10 and even 15 years ahead in the future. After leaving Intel in 2016, Steve built his own company, Possibility and Purpose LLC, which helps businesses to be more innovative, more resilient and more profitable. In 2018, he co-founded the Provenance Chain Network, an open standards approach to bringing transparency to global commerce. In 2020, he published his latest book, The Innovation Ultimatum, how six strategic technologies will reshape every business in the 2020s. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Steve to my podcast. We explore why the gap between those that embrace the new technologies and those that don't is going to dramatically widen. We also address why it is about agency taking responsibility and decide you're going to participate in building the future that defines the winners. And last but not least, we address what qualities leaders are required to develop to lead and be remarkable doing so. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that you should ask yourself two questions. What's the future we want to build? And what's the future we want to avoid? Secondly, that to be a great leader in the 2020s, you should be equipped to ask the right questions and become very clear-eyed and understand the application of these six technologies. Thirdly, why the smartest companies are thinking five or even six steps ahead and then work their way back to the starting point. And fourthly, that too much of the innovation we put out is still about boosting productivity and efficiency. And in doing so, 
we're leaving so much on the table that we risk irrelevancy. So hi, Steve. Welcome to be a guest on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure indeed for me. And actually, I really like the conversation today because you're like me, you're an author. And you, the kind of thing that we already have in common is that we published our book in the same week. And <laughs> what I realized just, well, just preparing for this is that we have exactly the same number of pages. And it's about, you know, the next generation of, of companies and through innovation. So there's a lot of commonalities here. But what you've been writing about is obviously radically different from what I've done, but absolutely of value to my audience. And that's what I want to dig into today. The first question that I want to kind of ask before we start and dig into your book is about, is about you. Tell me a little bit about yourself in terms of what characterizes you. What are the two or three words that you would phrase or, or name to that? I suppose I've always been fascinated by the future ever since I was a little kid. I was lucky enough. My dad worked at a university as a physics lecturer in the late 70s. And so I had an early access to computers. I mean, now no one thinks anything of a 10-year-old, you know, playing with computers. But back then in the 70s, it was a weird thing. And so it was at that early age, I realized that computers were going to change the world and I wanted to be part of it. And I've been fascinated with that stuff ever since. What else should you know about me? I live in the States, but I'm a Brit. I've been here about almost a quarter of a century now. Worked in high tech for 30 years and rose to be one of Intel's two futurists. So now an independent. And I help companies all across the world, different sizes, everything from Fortune 20 down to ones you've never heard of and never will hear of, and helping them think about how can they use technology to innovate and make the world a better place. That's fundamentally what I aim at, is how do you, you, how do you put technology to work to do good things for people. Yeah, and that's where there's a big link with, with the podcast that I'm doing because the purpose of the podcast is to share those compelling stories about the value that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And that's what I saw is there's a lot of things in your book are about that. First of all, the title, The Innovation Ultimatum. How did you choose that title? What's behind that? Well, part of it was my publisher said, it's got to be you know, some urgency in the title, make people pick it up and read it. But really, I came up with the term because I think there are two pieces to the innovation ultimatum. There's one that's sort of more obvious on the surface, which is the competitive imperative, which is kind of the stick, right? There's, I think this is a stick and a carrot. The stick is, you know, if you don't innovate, you die because over time you become irrelevant and fade away into nothingness. So in order to be competitive, you have to keep innovating. And we're, we're about to move into a period of very rapid innovation. And those, the gap between those that embrace technology and those that don't has always been there. But that gap is going to widen dramatically in the next decade. So that's the first side of the innovation ultimatum. The other side is the carrot. It's the, it's the doing the right thing. I think this is about a moral imperative that there's a group of new technologies that are, are maturing this decade, which when combined allow us to solve a whole class of problems that we could never solve before business problems, human problems, societal problems, because they are so powerful. And that enables us to start addressing some big human problems. And so there's a moral imperative. And I think that's the, the other side of the innovation ultimatum is the moral obligation for us as individuals and as, as companies to do the right thing and to create value for humans and to solve human problems. 
You mentioned that a couple of times already. I think we all got, we're going to dig into that a little bit after that. But what already inspired me or triggered me was we're about to move into a decade of very rapid innovation. I mean, and a lot of people think already that you know innovation has always been rapid. So what's mm-hmm. new here? I agree with you. But what do you believe is the acceleration here? Yeah, I think it's every couple of decades you go into a new era of computing. And, you know, in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, we, we were in the web 1.0 era, right, with personal computers and web browsers. We moved into the second era of computing, of personal computing. I mean, you, you can slice the eras of computing in many different ways, but this is a helpful way, I think, to think about this, is the second era, the web 2.0 era, yeah. is the combination of mobile and cloud technology that enabled a huge explosion of value creation because computers were suddenly mobile and and more personal and cloud enabled innovators to stand up capabilities much more cost-effectively and to scale them cost-effectively. I think we're now moving into the next era, which is characterized by six technologies that I write about in my book. And those combined are going to enable us to solve lots more problems than we could in the previous two eras. And this is characterized by some people call it web 3.0, the spatial web, spatial computing. But there's this notion that the bridge between the physical world that we inhabit and the digital world, which we know increases in capability exponentially, those links across the bridge are becoming incredibly intimately tied. So that, you know, you have this notion of digital twins. I talk about the fifth dimension, moving objects, infrastructure into the data dimension. Because once you give every piece of every object, every person, a digital element to it, you can start to create value in really interesting ways. So that's why I think it's going to happen very rapidly. The other way I could argue it is over the last 40 years, there are really four big technologies that changed the way that we create value in in the technology world, the PC, web, mobile, and cloud over 40 years. We now have six massive, huge technologies that are going to power us forward and they're all coming in the same decade. So that's why I think we'll see more technology-driven change in this decade than the last 40 or 50 combined. Yeah, that's true. And it's going to make, from my perspective, it's going to make a lot of current technologies and current approaches obsolete, but we have to rethink those. And not doing that, yeah, I mean, you're talking about your earlier point about, about becoming irrelevant. Again, talking about the innovation ultimatum, that's where the fun starts and some of the fears. And that's exactly going to the foreword of your book. Don't fear the future, prepare for it. Question at the end is where a lot of companies fear the future. Maybe what I actually think that a lot of companies don't fear it, but underestimate it. Do you agree? Yeah, I think, I think they don't recognize their active role in it. You know, we, we tend to think of the future as this thing that's coming at us, right? The future's coming, get the children inside, oh my God. But we all participate in and we all collectively build the future, right? So I think it's about agency, taking responsibility and deciding that you are going to participate in building the future. And I, I speak at events all around the world and one of the things I often do with my audiences is, as I say, you know, I call myself a futurist. That's my profession but I deputize you all as deputy futurists because you all have a stake in this, right? Sure. And we all get to decide what the future is. That's definitely a good thing. I mean, 
if you're not going to participate, someone is going to participate, and then you have to question whether you like it or not. Which brings me to a line that I highlighted in your book. It's a chapter. Align your automation strategy with your corporate purpose. I think that's the first connection already to like business and people. And the second line in there was like, raise your aim and solve a higher class of business problems. Can you elaborate, elaborate a, little, yeah. a little bit on that? Yeah, of course. So if you look at the, you know, what the, the bread and butter of the IT industry has been for the last 40 years, it typically focused around improving productivity and boosting efficiency, right? And that's, that's what the technologies we've invented up to this point were really, really good at. There are more things we can do. I mean, the new technologies that are coming, AIs, blockchains, augmented reality, sensors, 5G, all of that stuff, incredibly powerful technologies. By combining them, I think we can set our sights much higher than productivity and efficiency gains. You know, how can we help people to be more creative? How can we help them to be more intuitive, to make higher quality decisions? If you go really high, you know, I think about the corporate purpose of brands like Disney. You know, their job, their stated purpose is to make people happy, right? They're in the happiness business. So how could they use technology and innovation specifically to increase the levels of happiness of the people who go to their parks or who watch their movies or interact with their toys, right? So we can set these much higher goals and the technologies that we have at our fingertips this decade will help us to reach those goals, but only if we set our sights high enough. Let me make a small interruption here. Steve just made an excellent remark about our responsibility as leaders to set our sights high enough and leverage the technology out there, not to incrementally optimize existing problems, but to use it to create completely new value possibilities. And this is a trait that defines remarkable software companies. They ask themselves the question, what's the future we want to create and what's the future we want to avoid? And then work their way back so that they create new value possibilities. You can master this trade as well. To start, I'd recommend you to read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. There you will be inspired how to create new value possibilities, but also learn about the other nine traits as well. And for those of you that want to know where you stand with your software business, and where to put your focus to become the business that your customers keep talking about, simply do the test. You can find that one on valueinspiration.com slash remarkable index. Back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, it's so yeah, exactly. It's that aim high and, and see where you can end. Sometimes it's about like it's impossible, but yeah, we're gonna do it. Do you believe that is we don't do that enough? That we because of the pace of innovation that was rapid but not as rapid as it's going to be in the next decade, that we sort of become almost complacent, like, okay, we can do this. I mean, I see that, for example, from where I come from in the world of back-office systems, enterprise resource planning, that there are still vendors out there that think, okay, now my, now my on-premise solution is cloud. I'm done for the next decade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly complacency. Some of it is inertia, right? That's just the way that people have operated for the last 20 years. Yeah. So why would they do any different? They've been rewarded and get the paycheck, but that's not going to be enough going forward. And I think, and again, it comes back to that ultimatum, right? We're all fighting against irrelevance, right? And, and that's, that's the case for any brand, any company is to maintain relevance. And so to do that, you know, we're going to have to up our games, all of us. 
And it's just the right thing to do. If we, if we do up our games, we can create new value for people and solve new yeah. problems. And that's awesome. Do you think that's, I mean, how should leadership change around this? Because, I mean, one of the things you also said, and that, that's also what I see, is like if you get what you measure. The incentives maybe are not in that, in that line of mm-hmm. thinking. Sometimes it's even demo, you know, even demotivated to think big because of risk aversion and so on. So how can, what can leaders do in order to, to achieve exactly that, to think that big and, and achieve it? Well, I think a lot of it is understanding what I call the possibility landscape, right? And that's my job as a futurist is to look at how trends will come together, technology trends, business trends, people trends, and see how they will combine over time so that you're figuring out what will be possible in a certain time frame. And then you ask yourself two questions. What's the future we want to build? And what's the future we want to avoid? And those are two questions from my good buddy, Brian David Johnson, the other former futurist at Intel. And so I wrote this book for leaders to help them think through what is the possibility landscape. Because in, in the time I was spending with management teams, with boards, it became very clear while they are supposed to be the strategic thinkers for these organizations, and they are and they're incredibly senior, bright, strategic thinking people, they're very often distracted with very tactical problems. They're big tactical problems. You know, my biggest customer is online stock because of the problem we have, or, you know, I've got to fire my one of my employees because he's been doing bad things again. You know, they're big tactical problems, but they don't have the time to run a company and also be experts on the business application of AI or experts on how blockchain might completely change the way that their business operates and so on. So I think for leaders, if they are going to be great leaders in the 2020s, they have to become very clear-eyed and understand the application of these technologies. So it really means boosting their technology acumen, not to understand the bits and bytes of how machine learning works or, you know, the private versus public distributed ledger technologies. They don't need to get into the details. What they do need to understand is what problems can I solve with these technologies? So they're equipped to ask the right questions of their IT departments or their suppliers. Because if they don't know the right questions to ask, they can't lead with full knowledge of the possibility landscape. Yeah. And we go into a little bit of that also. One of the things that I like about your book is that you give so many different examples of what we can learn from other industries, from the transport tech, from the retail tech, from the supply chains, future supply chain and so on. I think that's also something that a lot of organizations don't do. They just stick into their, well, within the four walls of the company or at least within the industry, but don't look aside it. And I think a lot of the innovation and ideas and the disruption that can come from that, and I don't like the word disruption, but at the end it's about that that leap that you can create can come from looking beyond those borders. Whenever I do a keynote for someone in manufacturing, I will bring them examples from the world of agriculture and healthcare. Or if I'm talking to people in the mortgage business, I will bring them examples from retail. Because, yeah, you can learn so much by looking outside your industry. You're absolutely right. Exactly. That's true. But one of the things I want to highlight, because, I mean, again, coming from where my history is in the enterprise resource planning space and the finance system, procurement system, it's all process transaction oriented. In your chapter about the data ultimatum, 
create new value with data and elevate your offering. I think one of the things that I see as a problem is that a lot of people think that they are in the ERP business or they are in the manufacturing business, whatever, where you already highlighted that Disney, for example, yes, they are an entertainment company, but at the end they're in the happiness business. So it's that outcome that they are constantly looking for and that maybe those theme parks are just a way to create that happiness. And that's maybe the best way today. So talking about that, uh, that, sh- that paradigm shift, I think that, that applies to everybody. How do you get that to land and to, how do you approach that to become yeah, the driver for your business 2.0, you know, going from where you are today to make it completely data-driven? Well, you have to think about what are the experiences I want to be able to create and what's the data I need to support those experiences, whether it's the data I need to train my AIs or the data that I need to be able to refine to get the insights I need to personalize an experience for my customers? What data do I need to make higher quality decisions so I can streamline my operations and reduce my costs to improve the experience for my customers? But it all comes back to what's the data I need and how do I get it? And that yeah. could be data that you, you have in-house, but it's siloed. So how do you bring it together? How do you clean it, get it ready to be used? Maybe it's data I need to buy on the open market. Yeah. Maybe it's... Yeah. I need to, what sensors do I need to use to get the data to feed my system? So what's my sensor strategy? What's my data acquisition strategy? Do I need to do M&A to get some data? You know, think about what Google did I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. In order to deliver a lot of the services they, they bring today, they needed mapping. They didn't have mapping data. So they bought this little company and it became you know, the foundation of Google Maps. They also bought another company, which is the foundation of Google Earth, put it all together. On top of that, I talk about this thing called data spirals in my book, which is kind of the the Moore's law of data. So once you have a data set, you can use that to deliver a service. If you do it right, in delivering that service, you can gather more data and you use that data to then allow you to deliver even an even more sophisticated service. So, So if you think about people using Google Maps, as they use Google Maps, Google Maps is, is gathering their GPS data, which you can then parlay and turn into a traffic service, right? An True. automated traffic service. So you start to create these spirals. And so the smartest companies on the planet are thinking five or six steps ahead. And they're figuring out a service. Okay, I need this data. Well, how do I get that data? I got to deliver this service. I can't deliver that service without this data. And so they work their way back to a starting point. So it, it's a complex process. But if you get it right, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, but it, well, I mean, I completely agree. But it, for a lot of companies, it requires them to, to completely rethink what they're doing. And I mean, I like your point about re-engineering things back because then you start from the problem and yeah, then you make decisions in terms of where you are today, in terms of how you, how you get to that future. We talked a couple of times already about people in relation to this and dear to my heart. And there's a couple of things in your book that's, uh, that go into very much deep depth around that. One of the things that reminds me of my early start of my tribe was kind of the future of work and what to expect and how to make, your, how to make yourself robot-proof. And I had a couple of people on my podcast that talked about that. I mean, I remember Ryan Falkenberg, CEO of Clever, who said that people are trapped in the role of a robot. And there are more of that with different wording. I think we should prevent that. But what's your view on that? I mean, and what is your advice? So... The key thing to do is to build skills that robots will never have. And when I say robots, I mean robots and AIs, right? The things that make us uniquely human, 
that we're not going to be able to train machines to do. And typically people talk about the four C's. So, you know, creativity, communication, collaboration, critical thinking. But I think you can go broader than that. You know, empathy, entrepreneurial skills, an understanding of culture, right? There's, there's no way that an AI is going to understand all the weirdness of human beings, which we call culture. So the soft skills, you know, really being able to connect with other human beings, to inspire other human beings, planning skills. These are the things that make us uniquely human. So double down on those. I think the other thing to note is, yes, some jobs will be automated. And typically they are you know, repetitive, low skill, not particularly rewarding, sometimes dangerous. And just, you know, they're not good jobs, right? So I don't think we have an automation problem. We have an education problem, right? How do we educate people so that they can move from these jobs that, you know, humans shouldn't really be doing anyway, you know, if, if we're thinking about quality of life for people as they work and moving them into jobs that are more rewarding. And for the vast majority of us, and particularly for the people probably listening to your podcast, technology is not going to replace us. It's going to offload the tasks that we really don't like doing anyway. And it is going to augment our capabilities and elevate our work so that we can focus on tasks that are more meaningful and more rewarding. So I'm actually pretty bullish and positive about the future of work. But we all need to be mindful that that's not true for everybody. And we need to be, we need to extend a hand and help people to move into roles that will still be around. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm not sure whether we talked about, well, I mean, I mentioned Vinny Merchandani as a person that you would value knowing. But one of the things that he mentioned in one of the podcasts that I did with him was the three Ds, the dangerous, the dull, and the dirty work, which is exactly what you just, just described, the things we shouldn't be involved in anyway. Although some people make a lot of money with that, but that's a different story. I mean, yeah, the augmentation side of work, kind of also knowing that the, the working population is declining and in some yes. countries faster than others. I believe that the, this whole future of work is not so much about freeing people up, but far more about can we actually deliver the new demands that we are that we're going to have to face because all, all the norms are ex- exceedingly high so the augmentation is absolutely something like a necessity as well. And I don't see enough examples of augmentation yet. Do you see the- yeah, there's a ton, actually. And a lot of them from the AI world. So you know, Autodesk is a good example. They've included generative design capabilities in their design tools for architects, engineers, designers. And what's interesting, I was talking to one of the VPs at Autodesk about this. When they first rolled this technology out, they expected designers to report that they're more productive, right? Because what the technology does is you design something, industrial valve or a office layout or whatever it might be. And then the AI steps in and riffs on that design and creates hundreds or thousands of design alternatives, simulates them all, and then gives you a scatter graph that says, you know, here's the ones that are more cost-effective. Here's the ones that have better tensile strength. Here's the ones that are... So the designer can then look through that whole set of options and pick the one that they think is best. So the result is this collaboration of an AI and a human. And what's interesting, Tom, is that the designers who first tried these tools not only reported they're more productive, but they they felt more creative as a result of this because they could explore a much bigger design space with these tools. And the output that they had... Yeah. were far, far better designs than they could have done with traditional tools. So that's one example. I think another one is as a company called First. 
that uses AI to help guide a real estate agent I know. To, to predict which one of their clients is yep. most likely to be in the market for a house. And it's yep. scarily accurate. So that's, exactly. that's all meant in their intuition, right? I know. And he was on my podcast. And the, the funny oh, thing is actually in my book as well. He or they created a product that's actually antiviral because none of these real estate agents want to talk about their secret weapon. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's, uh, that's what I love about it. But like I said, I mean, it's not that I don't see enough, but I don't see enough in comparison to all these, these technologies that are still about the automation side. And I think, I mean, a lot of the time it's also because it's easier to do, but I mean, the real value is, is absolutely in those examples that you just talked about. It's also the things that we really want to pay money for as a consumer. If well, I can choose both. And it comes back to the conversation we had about 20 minutes ago, right? That leaders, particularly people in IT, are still focused on what they know how to do, which is boost productivity and efficiency. And they've not set their sights high enough to say, how do we make our workers more creative? How do we empower them? How do we help them make higher quality decisions? These are not the, the, the questions that leaders are asking, and they should be, because the technology now can help you do those things. And it, you know, five years ago, it couldn't. So it's a new game. Exactly. And productivity can, also, can only go into increments of percentages rather than when you take these, the combination of the machine and the person, that's where you can, that's competitive advantage. It's making leap yeah. forward. I mean, just take those designers that just take, that have hundreds of designs and can pick the best one cost and quality wise. Rick, and then can come up with ideas that couldn't have come up with themselves because, simply because they are not allowed the time to dig into that deep enough. Yeah, and, and you know, there are still productivity and efficiency gains to be had, for sure. But if you're only going after those, you're leaving so much on the table that you risk, you know, exactly. irrelevance. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So there's an, op- I mean, from that perspective, absolutely a bright look on the future both from the vendor side, the ISVs, the, the, the software business, but also from, of course, from a consumer perspective. And we talked around the kind of the, work, the workplace and the people that actually are working, but there's also this element of aging population. One of the things in your book are about meeting the needs of the aging population. So what is the story there? Well, I mean, as our population ages globally, and it, it's, this is uneven, the problem is, is very acute. We're already seeing it in Japan it's happening with the one child, one child policy in China very rapidly. Certainly in Western Europe, in the United States and Canada, you see it. It's coming, right? So we need to be able to take care of these people as they age and to do it cost effectively because the burden of healthcare costs to look after people is going to be extreme unless we can use technology to mitigate that, to reduce the costs and to boost the quality of care. So I think AI has a huge role to play, supporting role, along with sensors, helping us to make care remote so that we can manage people with chronic conditions in their homes. Now, we've seen with COVID the rise of telehealth and how successful that can be. But I think there's there's a huge opportunity to take care of people and use technology to keep those costs controlled so it doesn't burden society. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is already a good angle into a vertical angle of it. In your book, you're talking about the remote monitoring of patients, the sensors and wearables that flip the model. Yeah, very inspiring about what's happening there. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a number of chapters in your book that are talking about these ideas, these vertical tweaks. 
not to go into all these details, but what are what are two examples that have amazed you while while writing the book? Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to surprise a futurist, right? But it happens every day. <laughs> I think one of the ones I wrote write about in the book. It's typically the ones that that really make my jaw hang open are often in healthcare and they're AI related and, and sensors. So there's a company I write about in the book. In the book, it's referred to as Beyond Vocal, but they've changed their name now to Vocalis. And they use AI to listen for disease states in the sound of your voice, right? It's that just to be able to hear chronic heart failure, coronary artery disease, and they're optimistic they will have a voice diagnostic for COVID. And beyond that, they're working it's with- It's already available, clinic. by the way. It's already available. Right, but it's in testing now, right? But to have that certified, I mean, so that we don't have to have swabs shoved up our noses and wait eight days to just have an AI that can listen to our voice and tell us, yep, you've got it, or no, you're good. True. Right? That's pretty yeah. amazing. And to be able to hear cancer in the sound of your voice in the future, that kind of stuff blows me away. I mean, I had the chief scientist from, what's the word? I mean, from Vocalis. I mean, before yeah. they, uh, they rebranded on the podcast. And later on, I had another company in the same space on my podcast, Ordering. Ordering has, in the meantime, released a product that is actually detecting whether you have COVID, yes or no. It's like, it's, indeed, it's amazing. And it's, this is just going so fast. But it's, again, it's the data game. The more, the more data you have, the more of the recognition right. you can do, and the more you get back. And I mean, just to plug into that, that app into your phone and then everybody starts to work with that, it just gets better and better and better. Well, and there's a smart AI-enhanced stethoscope from a yeah. company called Sanola. Sanola is an, an Israeli, Israeli company. And it listens to not just the audible sounds, but what they call the infrasounds, the sounds that are beyond human ability to hear. So it listens to all these weird body sounds that we make and uses all of that to diagnose disease states. And they also are working on a diagnostic for COVID. Yeah, yeah. Well, where is this going? And I mean, this is just, this is also proving again how fast innovation can go because, I mean, at the moment we record this podcast, it's the middle of August. So we're just six months in there. But I mean, th those products are already coming to market. And this was, that was a couple of months ago already. The kind of between breakout and releasing is this is such a small time these days. And it proves again, if you, if you keep your eye open for the opportunity, there's so much possible to break that barrier. So kind of keeping, keeping time in focus here, a couple of the chapters in your book are about what we can learn from other industries. And I recommend everybody to read those examples. But one chapter is also about preparing our population for the post-automation economy. So there's lessons for the future of education. What's the key takeaway from there? And then and possibly also kind of going to, an, to a conclusion what are the top one or two things we should start asking ourselves tomorrow in order to prepare ourselves? I think it all comes down to access, right? How do we increase access to education? You know, at the moment, certainly higher education, you pay a lot, particularly in the United States, for access to education. People are burdened with huge debt. You know, they can be paying off for 20 or 30 years of their lives to get these educations. You know, <laughs> a few years ago, I was asked to speak in front of the presidents of six universities. And the first thing out of my mouth was, you need to figure out how to use technology to cut the cost of a quality education in half. And the room was silent. It was like I'd farted in church, right? <laughs> and, and I said, and then once you've done that, you need to figure out how to cut it in half again. 
Okay. And then, well, we couldn't possibly, you know, we can't possibly do that. Well, no, you can't possibly do that doing education the way you do it today, right? And education is one of those systems that has been resistant to change because of tradition. We educate kids the same way now, by and large, that we did 150 or 200 years ago. And, yep. you know, we, we have not designed an education system for the internet era and for the post-automation era. So it's about what's the right skills people need and how do we refocus education to help people build the skills they need to be successful in a world of AIs and robots. And then how do we use that same technology that's going to displace some people from their jobs to deliver education in a whole new way? At the moment, you know, there's some amazing teachers, amazing talent trapped inside universities. Why should I only get to the best woman on the planet to teach this topic? Because I didn't pay to go to that college, right? How can we make her skills and her amazing teaching ability available to everybody in the country, everybody on the planet? So there's this just weird system that we've built up around brick and mortar, you know, and there's a lot to be said for face-to-face. We're finding this out during COVID, but there's a lot to be said for the digital side of connecting people to the best teaching talent out there. And I suspect that the future of education is this hybrid model, which combines both digital and experiential stuff with AR and VR. And, you know, it's a great place to take you somewhere else and face-to-face tuition where you get that human-human connection with tutors. So I think we really need to rethink education and it's a world that is incredibly resistant to change. Maybe COVID is what will help us break through there. Yeah, well, it's the, first of all, the model that it's about, you know, they're measured by graduation, where at the end, the people that go through college, the only thing they care about is, I mean, I want to be able to, to contribute to society and to be employable, which are two completely different things. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I mean, my son is here in the room when he was kind of trying to get through the institution here in Spain. I mean, this full Christmas holiday studying just one one part it was like history i mean days after days after days to figure out and to be to acknowledge or to remember what happened 300 years ago in spain yeah i mean <laughs> one google and you get it it's that proves yeah. again how yeah, how stupid it is but it's well we have to shift from training people how how to remember to training people how to think exactly. and give them the skills that make them remember. i mean anybody that has hired someone straight out of college knows that they're not equipped to work in your business right away. You have to teach them, you know, basics like, you know, meeting discipline and, you know, some self-awareness and how to communicate and how to behave in a business environment. They're not taught any of that. And it's really interesting to see Google coming out and now taking a jump and saying, you know, if you do this class for six months, it will equip you to the same level in this particular topic as if you'd done a four-year degree. So, you know, I think the, some businesses are going to start taking this into their own hands yeah. and saying, you're not giving me the equipped employees that I need, so I'm going to go and equip them myself. Exactly. Well, there's a lot to come and a lot to think about and a lot to change, and I think that's the opportunity for the future. So I want to really, I want to thank you for your time today and to, well, your inspirational view of the world as a futurist. Recommend everybody to read your book, The Innovation Ultimatum. Any final words that you want to end with? Well, just, you know, I say this in my presentations. I mentioned it earlier. 
you know, I call myself a futurist, but we should all be futurists, right? We should all be taking a stake in our futures, our collective futures. So I encourage you all to be, you know, open conversations with your friends, with your colleagues about these types of topics. Get people to have this conversation because ultimately our future lies at the intersection of technology and culture. And we have to figure out how those two come together in a positive way. And you know, the questions that my old colleague, Brian David Johnson, always used to ask, what's the future you want to build? And what's the future you want to avoid? Unless we have those conversations explicitly as a society, we're going to screw it up. So I invite everybody to participate. Thank you. Wise words. And this ends my conversation with Steve. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Steve Brown, founder of Possibility and Purpose and author of The Innovation Ultimatum. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.